And so here's what I want you to do is just turn to somebody around you. Tell them the highlight of your summer. What was the best thing that took place? All right, go. So I can tell by the services who had the best summer. Five o'clock definitely had a better summer. You guys are way too quiet. So tell me, over here, what was the best thing that happened this summer? Somebody yell it out. Hume? All right. High schoolers and counselors probably uh, went to Hume Lake. Yeah, it was good. You guys had a great time? Great. That's a camp that our high schoolers go to every summer. Great camp, beautiful site. Good job. All right. All right. This section. Say again. The lake? What lake? Any lake. Doesn't remember, but it was great. Good enough? All right. That's great. All right, over here. Got married where? Stand up. Stand up. Congratulations, you guys. All right. Good job. We'll check back in next year and see how it's going. It's going to be, it's going to be great. It's going to be, somebody else yelled something over here. Stockton? Adopted. Nice. Those are, those kind of put your lake thing to, you know what I'm saying? But that's pretty cool. That's great. All right, over here. Your family got baptized together. Wow. That's cool. That is cool. That is a great summer. Well, I, you know what? The best thing for me this summer might be just being here today. I, I missed you guys. I have been gone a few weeks, and I am so glad to be back. There is no place like Seacoast. I'm just telling you. So uh, it's great to be back. I'm glad you're here. We're going to have fun. Uh, we're going to get back to God, and uh, that's a part of what we do, uh, just to, to support the ministries of the church and, and also to just uh, say thank you to God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say thank you to you while they're doing that. Um, in June, uh, I told you that we were coming to the end of our fiscal year and we were behind, and I just need to tell you guys that you caught it up. We ended in the black. Thank you. Great job. Great job. I don't make a habit of that. I rarely do that, but somehow we had fallen behind and we were living according to our budget, but our income was just kind of not there. So I do need to say, now don't just think you're done. We got another budget now, okay? So I don't have to get up and make that speech again, so let's be faithful. That's great. Well, um, we're starting a new series, and this new series is called Level Up. Now, I didn't know exactly what that meant, Level Up. So somebody in the department said that it's for gamers, and when they, you know, they win and they go to the next level up, for me, it's about the next level. So um, I realized that there are times in our life when God calls us to live at another level than we're living at, to love at the next level, to give at the next level, to commit ourselves to character development at the next level. And so over the next few weeks, Cody and I are going to be sharing with you uh, what we, uh, some things that we see about living a next level kind of life. And it's taken from the book of Acts. And it's not just about your life, it's about our church. And uh, I want to kind of talk to you about living at a next level. 
And uh, so this book of Acts, just a little historical background, is, um, is written. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. That's the story of Jesus. Acts is kind of the end of the story of Jesus in chapter 1. And, and then the implications for those who, who had relationship with Jesus uh, and the beginning of the church. And the church, uh, and I don't mean this church, I mean the church, capital C, the church changed the world. Within just a few hundred years, the church had turned the then known world completely upside down. Uh, Rome had become a Christian empire. Um, Much of what you and I appreciate about democracy, about the nation we live in, uh, the attitudes, values, actually are based on Christianity. Even if it's a secular environment, you still can trace back the roots of the values that were taught by Christ and that the church began to disseminate in the world. And so uh, it really was next level kind of thing. And that's what it was intended to be. So People who take Jesus and they take the Gospels, they go, okay, he had some good things. He was a good teacher. He had some good things to say, but he wasn't all that. Well, he was all that, and he intended us to understand because his life was uh, the foundation for what was going to change the entire history of the world. And it was a whole new level we were invited to live on. Now, it's, it's kind of symbolic. Sometimes we read scripture and we don't really understand all the implications of what's happening. So I want to help you today, maybe just identify a few of those uh, that you might miss. And so I'm going to talk about Acts chapter 1 and 2 today. But in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we find this, this event that is, that is predicted uh, that Jesus talks about in Acts chapter 1 uh, before his ascension. And in Acts chapter 2, it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to show you that God did intend for us to live on a new level in a different way because of what Christ did. So let me just show you Acts chapter, if you have a, a, a Bible app or a Bible actually, we um, can turn to that, otherwise you can read it here. On, and, uh, when the day of Pentecost came, they're all together in one place. Now this is what Jesus, the together in one place, Jesus told them to do that. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But when the day of Pentecost came. Now, Pentecost was one of the three major festivals, religious festival in Israel. Uh, the Jews celebrated this. But what's interesting, by the intertestamental period, it started out as a, as a, as a kind of a harvest uh, festival, at the end of harvest festival. But by the time the intertestamental period had come, in other words, the time after the Old Testament had been written and before uh, the church had really been established, this, this festival of Pentecost was actually a celebration of the giving of the law. The Ten Commandments. Remember Charlton Heston, the whole thing, right? The giving of the law. And so here is that, look at this this contrast, this kind of uh, juxtaposition of what Jesus came for us to have versus what they had had. So up to this time, the Jews had lived a religious life of rule keeping. So the way you um, the way you impress God, uh, unfortunately, it kind of devolved into the way you impress each other is how many rules you could keep. And they didn't just start with the ten, which are pretty good rules. I'm going to have to admit that, right? Um, we probably should still keep them now, don't you think? Ten commandments? No, not everybody. Okay, uh, but in addition to that, they had added all these other rules hundreds of rules, other rules, hundreds of them that they added to this. And so the whole religious life was about keeping the rules. And on the very day in which they're celebrating the rules, the Holy Spirit comes and invites them to live their faith life and their entire life on a whole nother level, 
a level in which, they, because of what Christ has done and what the Holy Spirit is going to do, they can not just keep the rules, they can have a relationship with God. See the difference? Rule-keeping relationship. Rules, relationship. And so it is not coincidental that it was on the day of Pentecost, the day in which they celebrated rules, in which God says, I've got something better than the rules. I've got the Holy Spirit that can help you in your relationship with God and living your life on a whole nother level. Okay? Now, let me give you a little background on that. In Acts chapter 1, just the previous chapter, in verse 4, it says this. On one occasion, this is Jesus talking before the ascension, after the resurrection, before the ascension. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Now, what they'd heard him speak about was that someday you're going to do greater things than I've done. Uh, God will send you another comforter. There are all kinds of promises that Jesus had referred to, and they didn't understand what he was talking about. What he was talking about is that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, was going to come and reside in each believer to empower them. So in verse 8 of chapter 1, it references, he references that. Jesus says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you will receive power to live your life on a whole other level, and as a result of that, you're going to turn the world upside down. You are going to tell the world about me. So that's chapter 1. So let's go to chapter 2. So what happened on the day of Pentecost that we're talking about? So. In, uh, in chapter 2, starting with uh, verse... Are you with me okay? You good? good. Yeah, because i got a lot I'm going to give you. I'm going to talk fast, so hang with me. Okay, here we go. So um, in chapter 2, he says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they're all together in one place. So, so, so by the way, um, he had told them not to go. In chapter 1, he told them not to go, just running off, that, to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they went back to an upper room and they began to pray. And so I don't know what, what he was doing. He was taken into heaven. We don't know what, but he told us to wait here until something happens. And here's the something. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, it's interesting because those of us who have long-time Christian roots and, and understand theology, we all jump to a certain theology at this point. But before we get to that, that theological question, I want to I point out something that the Jews would recognize that you and I don't recognize. There were, so God being um, um, non-sensory, in other words, we can't know when God is with us. We can't see him, we can't feel him, can't touch him. Would sometimes the Old Testament give us some sensory experience or give them some sensory experience to know that God was there? So, uh, so the, the sound of wind. So the three things that were, that were recognized in the Old Testament by the Jews that God was present was wind, fire, and then a, a spoken word uh, um, that is, is unique about God. So... The, think about the Israelites in the, in the desert, for those who have, uh, are familiar with the Old Testament, and they were wondering what led them? A pillar of fire, right? And so when, when this happens, the Jews not only know something weird is going on, but they know it has to do with God because of these three signs. That any Jew, and it was all Jews that really knew this, and they'd all studied, they all understood that there was something ab about this that came from God. So they understood those signs in a way we didn't understand them. And so, so what happens is they have this weird sound of wind, uh, 
there's also an interesting symbolism here that I won't get into, but it's about the fire resting on each of them because before the fire had led the whole nation of Israel and now is on each of them. It has to do with God working in us individually as a part of this new level of relationship with God. That makes sense? You okay? Okay, so, so on, this, on the heels of this weirdness, right, what happened was they, they began to speak in tongues and what happened was that there were people in either in town for the Pentecost festival or the, for the Jews who through having been conquered and so on had been moved to other parts of the then known world and were living there or had been raised there and they were making pilgrimages or moving back to Jerusalem just as happened in the last uh, 70 years or so, right? They were moving back but they still spoke their original language wherever they were from. And if you read the passage, you'll find that not only was there the sound of the wind and there was this fire, appearance of fire somehow, um, they were speaking these people's languages. Now, there's a little funny thing in the, in, the, in the text here. And it says, it references the fact that the 120 up there praying, who are, this all is happening to, is they were Galileans. Now, we don't understand what that means, but that's a little shot at the disciples, so people in Jerusalem were kind of sophisticated, educated, right? They really, but people in Galilee were like from Arkansas. <laughs> Anybody here from Arkansas? Anybody? Yeah. How you like this electricity? Uh, that's sorry. That's just a joke. Just a joke. Arkansas is beautiful. Kentucky, on the other hand. But anyway, so the Galileans were kind of considered like backwoods. Rednecks, and even their language, there's been research on the way they, they, they talk. They had a twang in which they couldn't pronounce some of the guttural sounds in other languages. And so you could always tell because they sounded uneducated or ignorant. And so there's a little shot in it. How can they be speaking our language? They're Galileans, <laughs> right? It's like a shot that we don't get. So what so what's interesting is, is so they hear this wind. And so the picture is probably chronological. They probably are in a room praying, and then all of a sudden there's a sound of wind. People on the streets are going, what is that? What is that sound? And they come, and, and then they, uh, they hear them speaking in their own language. And some of their response is interesting. They must be drunk. So evidently alcohol can help you learn other languages really fast. <laughs> How is that an explanation? I don't understand. That doesn't explain any of the three signs, Right? Peter stands up and he says, in verse 14 of chapter 2, I think we have that. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. Now, that worked back then. I don't know if it would work now or not. I, I, don't, I don't know if that would be a... <laughs> so we hear this and we go... Okay, this is just weird. Wind, fire, tongues, really? This, I don't think I can believe this. Really, because you're on the heels of believing a man came back from the dead. That's a little harder to believe even than these, isn't it? See, if your God can't do things you can't fully explain, you don't have much of a God. It's certainly not a God that I want to trust my whole life with and my future and my eternity to. If God decided that this is how he was going to start the church and get people's attention, because he didn't want to start with just 120, he wanted to start with about 3,120. 3, because at the end of this, we find out that 3,000 people came to join the church that day, so they had a little bigger crowd to start with as they were going to live on this new level and change the whole world. And if that's how God decided to do that, he just raised Jesus from the dead, I guess he could do that. 
See, we get hung up on certain aspects of theology, but in reality, we just need to go, wow, that's kind of amazing. That's how God did that. And he used signs that the people who were there understood that you and I don't get like that, that those are all symbols of God to them and references to God. And so Peter stands up and says, now let me explain to you what's happening here. They're not drunk. And then he begins to talk about the Old Testament. And he begins to talk about prophet Joel. And he talks about, and he, and he articulates how Joel had already predicted this. And then a little further, he, he talks about how David had predicted Christ's resurrection. And he shows these Jews who were all religiously educated. They understood the scripture. And he lays out this whole Old Testament basis for Jesus being the Messiah, the one who had come to deliver them. And in that, he not only talks about Jesus born, lived, taught, died for our sins, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. Basically, it's the gospel. That's the gospel. And he preaches this sermon, the first sermon in the church ever, and he preaches this gospel, and he tells them who Jesus was. And then he does what I call the confrontation. And the confrontation is found in verse 29. And he says, having explained all of the Old Testament predictions about who Jesus was. And these people are sitting here. They know the Old Testament. They understand the interpretation of Scripture that he's given. They've seen the miraculous. They knew about Jesus and the rumors of his resurrection. It's all within just a few days and in the same locale where this all happened. So it's not, they're not coming into this cold. They understand what's going on. He stands up and then he says this in verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. It goes on. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that, would, uh, that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Keep going. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead and decay. So this is David. He says, David has proved this. And then it goes on. And, and it says in verse 32, God has raised this Jesus. So just as David predicted, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. So he's saying, he's not talking to audience who doesn't understand what's going on. They all know the rumors and many of them may have actually seen the risen savior. All right. And then if we could go on down, I think it's verse 36, if I remember right. Do you have that back there? Verse 36. Therefore, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, that couldn't have been popular. Whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So here is what Peter does. Peter says, you guys saw something weird. Now you're listening. Let me tell you the truth. The truth is that what we have all waited for, for all of these years, the deliverer has come and you guys murdered him. Now, let me just, let me just, just parenthetic, this isn't my notes. I didn't share this the other service. I just wanted to show you that we we're called to life on a different level. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. The first evidence we have is Peter himself. What was Peter doing when Jesus was being um, on trial? He was hiding because he was a wimp. Now he's standing in front of some of those same people in the same location saying, you murdered him. What happened? What happened in, ver in verse eight of chapter one? You will receive power to be my witnesses. Something changed in Peter. Something happened in Peter and the disciples that empowered them to actually turn the world upside down. And it begins right here with Peter the wimp standing up and proclaiming the truth, which is gonna get him in big trouble. If you read the succeeding chapters, you will find he got him in big trouble with threats for his life and all this kind of stuff and eventually cost him his life. 
And yet something happened. The Holy Spirit came and changed him. And there is this confrontation. Now, here is the reason we're starting this series about living life on the next level is because every one of us have to come to grip with a question. Every person needs to come to grip with this question. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the person of Jesus? Do you write him off as a good teacher? He didn't give you that option, really, because he said he was God. A good teacher wouldn't say he's God if he's not God, right? Well, you know, he, he was one way to heaven. Now he said he was the only way to heaven, so he's either a liar or he, so he said he is. You see, you can't just write off Jesus as just something less than what he was. He either was God, the only way to be saved, or he wasn't. And so what Peter is doing to this crowd, he is cutting to the core of the issue. Matter of fact, that's exactly what they said. Look at verse 37. It says this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, cut to the heart, um, and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, here's an interesting, in that, in that phrase, cut to the heart, that's a very interesting phrase. And I want to focus on that today because it's an issue every one of us must come with. We, uh, if we're going to live life in the next level, live life that God intends us to live, you've got to come to grips with who Jesus is. And you've got to commit to, to a worldview based on that. Um, so I have a weird thing. I like to watch medical stuff on TV, like surgeries and stuff. Like, have you ever watched Dr. Pimple Popper? <laughs> have you ever watched that? Isn't it, it's just a guilty pleasure, isn't it? That and some ice cream, and you're good to go. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was gross. Right before lunch. Well, I just helped you with your diet. So anyway, um, have you ever seen open heart surgery? And, and if anybody's had it here, I'm about to have some really bad flashbacks for you. I apologize. Close your ears. But what they do for open heart surgery is they cut, right? They cut, right? And then they saw the sternum, and then they take these jaws, these, these clamps, metal, and they... Oh, painful. And then you can, and they dig, and finally you can see that organ in there pumping, right? And then they decide to disconnect it or partially disconnect it or whatever to do, whatever valves they're working on, whatever. So there is a picture here in this cut to the heart phrase. This phrase, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart because they knew the story he had told them. They knew that Jesus had done miracles. They probably sensed that he was innocent, and they knew the rumors, if not known for fact, they might have actually seen Jesus as a risen Savior. They knew that was all true, and they somehow, on some level, knew they were guilty. By the way, remember the Passion of the Christ, uh, Mel Gibson movie? Do you know he only appeared in that movie in one place? Do you know when that was? It was his hands that was nailing Jesus to the cross. Isn't that interesting? And they somehow understood, as we all understand, that we are guilty of some things. And no matter how much we try to justify, no matter how much we self-justify, at the end of the day, we know we're not exactly who we're supposed to be. That we could be different. We could be better to ourselves and to others. We know that. We know we've done things wrong. And so what Peter does is he just reaches and lays their, all of their excuses. He just lays it open. He exposes the core of who they are. And by the way, that's a hard thing to do because many of us, all of us on some level, but have you ever been with somebody for an extended period of time and you feel like I've been around this person a lot and I don't know a thing about them because they just live their life close to the vest? You ever been like that? I mean, I've got people I've known for years and I really don't know anything about who they really are. I know about what they project. I know about what they do for a living. I might even know that they have money or don't have money, but I don't really know any core things about them. And what Peter does for these Jews is he lays them open. And when we come to grips with the person of Jesus Christ, he kind of lays us open. 
Now, what's interesting about this thing is we have a choice how we're going to respond. I don't know why certain people respond one way and certain people respond another way. I don't know. But some people respond positively and some respond negatively. So this phrase that I read to you, uh, cut to the heart, is an interesting phrase. Because Luke, the one who's writing Acts, uh, uses it a couple of more times in Acts. And in this case, it was positive. It was cut to the heart. What do we got to do to fix this? We got to make it right. They responded positively to the message of Christ. But that wasn't always the case. There's two other cases in the, in the book of Acts in which it is used. And they're both religious types who were very ensconced and proud of their rule-keeping ability and are not willing to listen to that God might have intervened and brought something better. And so let me read this before you. It's Acts 5.33. And the disciples have just preached basically the same sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And here's the religiously, easy to say, religious response. Now, when they heard this, they were furious. That's the word furious. And wanted to put them. So if you read it, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And the reason it's translated as a negative there is because of what comes after it. And wanted to put them to death. So they were cut to the heart and wanted to kill the guys that told them the truth, the disciples. It's the exact same word. The reason it's negative here is what comes after it. There's another one in chapter 7. Chapter 7, the same thing. He's telling them about Jesus, about his life, his death, his resurrection, forgiveness of sin, heaven, all this stuff, the gospel. When the members of the Sanhedrin, religious types, heard this, they were furious. Same word. Cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart and gnashed their teeth at him. Now, I don't know what gnash their teeth is, but it sounds bad, doesn't it? It sounds negative, right? That's why it's translated furious there. There's an interesting thing that happens. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented, either you own your stuff and admit you need a savior, that you can't fix yourself, that you can't heal yourself, and you certainly can't bring ultimate forgiveness to yourself and assure yourself of the kind of eternity you'd like to have. You either humble yourself. So cut to the heart gives you a chance to reveal a humble heart or a hardened heart. The religious leaders had a hardened heart. These people on the day of Pentecost had a humble heart. They were willing to hear the truth. They were honest about their brokenness. By the way, as long as we're acting like we've got it all together and we've got it all figured out, there's no room for God. <laughs> but the minute we say that we are weak and we are broken and we are wounded and we're struggling, there's all kinds of room for God if we'll allow him to come in. And so the gospel is simply about laying your heart open and allowing God to come and bring healing and forgiveness, and hope. That's what it's about. And so this group in Jerusalem is willing to hear that. And then they say, well, brothers, what must we do? And here is what Peter says. Peter, in verse 38, replied. Uh, be, he says, repent and be baptized, everyone, in the name of Jesus Christ, for his forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. That's what it is. Repent. And be, what is this? That's an internal choice and an external action. The internal choice is, I'm, have you ever seen kids say they're sorry, but they weren't? Like, like my grandkids say, tell your sister you're sorry for hitting her with the bat. Sorry. He's not sorry, right? There's no repentance there. He's just trying to get off the hook so he can hit her again later. <laughs> repentance is owning the fact that I am, the Bible says all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, all of us have lived lives less than God intended us to live. I'm going to own that. It's true. I'm sorry I've done that. It's been detrimental to my life. It has been hurtful to the people around me. I am sorry. Lord, I am sorry. Please forgive me and help me live differently. 
Repent means to turn around, say, I'm sorry, and turn around, go forward in a different way. That's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, repent of, of having lived life outside of what God intended for you and become who God wants you to be by following Jesus. That's what he's saying. And then he says, you decide to do that. You, you repent. And then go be baptized. Make the decision internally and then take external action. One of the most powerful lessons we can learn. By the way, we want to follow Jesus. You want to be baptized. We're having a baptism next weekend. You want to be baptized. You're a Christian. You've never been baptized. That is an adult. Be baptized. You want to follow Jesus? What did Jesus do? He was baptized. He didn't need it. You do. He did it as an example. You need to stand up in front. Just like when you fall in love, you guys get married. You do that in front. Family, friends want to celebrate this because we, we love each other. That's what baptism is. I stand up in front of my family and friends and whole congregation say, I love Jesus. I repented. I'm following him. I want you guys to know it. I love baptism. I love the way we do it. We do it outside. We do it by full immersion. We do it in front of a lot of people. It's embarrassing. It's a commitment, right? Early church fathers said you should do it in cold running water because it's a real commitment then. It's a, it's a commitment. I want to say publicly, externally, what I've decided internally. This is repent and be baptized. And whenever you make an internal commitment to a next level in your faith, a next level in your life, you should do some external thing. Maybe you should go sign up for Rooted. Maybe you should sign up for CR if you need to deal with something there, some herbit, uh, habit or hurt, hang up. Maybe if you need to join a, a mom's group because you've decided you're going to raise these kids for Jesus, so they'll know Jesus. Whatever it is, take some external step to do that. So um, let me just quickly, I'm running out of time. I have a lot saved up. I haven't spoken in a few weeks. Uh, we could be here all day. The promise in verse 39, it says this. It says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The promise is for you and your children. And all for Here's the last point. The most important thing is you come to grips with who Jesus is. And if, if he is who he said he is, you need to accept him and make him Lord of your life. And the wonderful promise is not only will forgive you and send the Holy Spirit to empower you to live your life on a different level, that will impact those yet to come. It says the promise for you and your children and those who are far off. A couple of weeks ago, I stood on a platform in another city, a casket in front of me. My dad was, his body was in that casket anyway. And by the way, thank you for all the cards and expressions of condolences. I so appreciate having a loving church family. It's so helpful. And I stood there, I had a, my brothers and I each had an opportunity to speak. They're all pastors and one of my cousins as well. And, and um, I had some, some thoughts prepared. And in the middle of them, I had this other thought. And it may have been from God or it might have been pizza from the night before. But I realized that I was standing in a community that is very well-to-do, frankly. Yeah, it's a very affluent community. And then the last 22 years, my dad has been working in my brother's church there. He's helped a lot of people who, for a good portion of their life, believed that keeping score was, was important. And when you died, the one who had the most money and the most properties and biggest portfolio wins. And he told me numerous stories about the guys that he worked with who have achieved all that and still lost because at their funeral, their kids didn't cry. And some of them even experienced lawsuits afterwards. And that that wasn't how you keep score. And I realized that in that moment, I had an opportunity to say something. I don't know if it was from God or just the pizza, but I said, we all get to the end of our lives and the people looking at us are gonna have a, have a report card. I just need to tell you, for my dad, you need to write down an A because we don't 
get our grades based on how much money you have and the size of your portfolio, real estate holdings. I want you to do a report card on Norm. That's what they call him at that church, Norm, based on me, my brothers, my cousins, my uncle, my kids, my grandkids. Because the promise that my dad lived by, which is that God could save him and forgive him and keep him, is the promise that I live by because he lived by that promise. And my kids live by and my grandkids will live by. You see, my grandmother, who became a Christian as she was, thought she was dying and gave up, her, gave up her bootlegging business and God changed her life, could never have foreseen all these generations. She could never have foreseen this place or you people sitting here. She couldn't have foreseen that curly-headed little grandson I had who loves Jesus or my little granddaughter who sings Jesus songs all week. She couldn't have seen those, but the promise that she believed has impacted us. And if you doubt that, I can show you the other branches of the family starting at that point who went a very different direction. Norm got an A because of what God did through him for us. And when you make a decision for Jesus, it's not just for you. It's for all those to come who are far off, your family or just those who are watching you. That's how you live life on a different level. And that's how you set your kids up to live life on a different level. 